This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Welcome to our series on the most important battles in the Civil War. We're hewing mostly to a military history of the Civil War, but you can't only talk about the battles because there are so many things happening as a result of the battles and events that are critically influencing future battles in terms of how the public perceives the Civil War, how people are reacting to it, and how this can affect things like manpower. The most critical thing, the most critical outcome of the Civil War that most people would say was emancipation. And we thought it would be worthwhile to focus on it. Why did it happen? What did people think about emancipation for the Emancipation Proclamation? Was it universally popular in the North? Did everyone want this? Did only some people want this? Why did only some people want this? And what were the results of the Emancipation Proclamation? So, James, walk us through this. How does this begin? Does everyone want emancipation for all slaves before the Civil War begins? Absolutely not, at least not the beginning of the war. Actually, really, even to, to the end, there was a significant number of people in the North that did not want it. At the beginning of the war, pretty much the entire Democratic Party, every every Democrat, or I, I can't say every, not 100%, but I'd say 90% of Democrats were opposed to emancipation. Even in the Republican Party, of course, which was the party of Lincoln and generally seen as the anti-slavery party, there were three wings. There were 
uh, radical Republicans, there were moderate Republicans, which Lincoln was one of those, and then there were conservative Republicans, and the conservatives didn't really care too much for emancipation either. The moderates wanted slavery to go away, but not anytime soon necessarily. The radicals were really the only ones that wanted slavery to end right away. Right away. But that attitudes are going to change. They're going to harden, especially among Republicans throughout the war. So we'll see how that works here. Uh, for the first 18 months of the war, slavery was in the background for the North. The North went to war strictly to save the Union, period. That was it. Emancipation had nothing to do with Union war aims, at least for 90% of Northerners. And as long as this one goal, saving the Union, was the only war aim, there was a great sense of unity in the North. But soon, obviously, there's going to come a debate about what type of Union there would be after the war. So what happens once we win this war? Is it going to be a Union with slavery, just like it was before the war, or is it going to be without slavery? And related to this is the question of what type of war is this going to be? Is it going to be a limited war? just aimed at bringing the South to negotiations, or would it be an all-out war aimed at remaking the South in the image of the North? These are questions that were extremely important, and there were many, many different answers to these questions, and we're going to see how that impacts the war itself. Yeah, so for Lincoln, I think he's an interesting entry point because he's the great emancipator, but Lincoln in 1861, I mean, how would he look at these issues? Well, Lincoln's views changed dramatically throughout the war. Originally, we saw how he had pledged during his presidential campaign that he wasn't going to have any wasn't going to affect slavery or change the situation in the South. He just wanted to restrict slavery so that it did not go into the territories. Uh, in his inaugural address in March of 1861, and again in July of that year, Lincoln reaffirmed his campaign promise to not interfere with slavery where it already existed. Obviously, the southern states did not believe him, but that's, he said, no, really, I mean this. And even in July, the, the month in which the first Battle of Bull Run was fought, Congress also passed a resolution almost unanimously that summer saying the same thing. Congress agreed with Lincoln, we're not going to touch slavery in the states where it already exists. And part of Lincoln's motivation, Lincoln personally hated slavery but he was a moderate. He, didn't, he, was, he wanted to keep the Union together. And part of his motivation was not to alienate the border states. Uh, he had to move very, very slowly, therefore, to restrict slavery. We already saw, uh, we talked about the border states in a very early episode. And Lincoln has the famous statement that I'd like to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. <laughs> so we got to move real slowly because if we come out, in the beginning, talking about, oh, we're going to get rid of slavery, we're going to emancipate all the slaves, then we'll lose Kentucky, we'll lose Missouri, might lose Maryland too. So Lincoln's got to be very, very careful and delicate. The more, majority of Northerners did not like slavery, but they didn't care to interfere with it in the South. And let's just go over the Republican Party again real quick. I've already kind of touched on this, but um, as I mentioned, the Republican Party was divided into three wings. If you watch the movie Lincoln, by the way, which is a fantastic movie, uh, you see this division very obviously. You have conservatives in the Republican Party. They wanted slavery to end eventually, but only very gradually and voluntarily. They wanted to tie it to colonization. 
then you had moderates, including Lincoln, who wanted to end slavery sooner than the conservatives, but not immediately. They feared a race war and other problems if the slaves were freed too quickly. Some of them also favored colonization. Lincoln himself originally was in favor of colonization, and we'll talk about that more a little bit later. As the war progressed, some moderates moved toward the radical position, and I think Abraham Lincoln was one of them. And then you had the radicals who wanted slavery ended immediately. These were abolitionists. They wanted emancipation as a war aim from the very beginning of the war. They were in a minority in the party, but they were very vocal and they were very aggressive, and they were disproportionately represented in the House and the Senate. Right. And I think it's important to look at the radicals because when we think of abolitionists, we imagine that everyone is like this. Number one, that's not the case. Number two, they weren't really beloved in the way we would think that, oh, they were the MLK of the day. Well, I mean, their aims were good and they did contribute to human betterment, no doubt. But it's a little bit more complex than that. And I just want to mention a few things because that helps us understand the complexities of abolition and all these factors we have going in. Um, so just a tiny bit of background, uh, the push for abolition had existed since the founding of, um, America with groups like the Quakers, uh, it reached a new crescendo in the 1830s and it only grew until the civil war, uh, especially through Northern churches, uh, and politicians began the 1830s. This leads to the regional animosity between the North and South. We mentioned in the first episode. Uh, one of the major groups of radicals was the American Anti-Slavery Society that denounced slavery as a sin that had to be abolished immediately. They endorsed nonviolence, condemned racial prejudice. It establishes hundreds of branches throughout free states, it floods the North with anti-slavery literature and petitions demanding that Congress end all federal support for slavery. Uh, so this provokes a lot of hostile reactions from the South, but even the North. There's mobs that burn mailbags containing abolitionist literature. Uh, there's a passage in the U.S. House of Representatives that uh, there's a gag rule that banned consideration of anti-slavery petitions. Uh, but one other thing I want to mention that made the radicals more difficult to deal with than we would realize is that total abolitionism wasn't just an issue in its own right, but a lot of abolitionists bundled this cause, emancipation, with other issues like women's suffrage and temperance. And it's sort of like you'll hear some activists today talk about intersectionalism, where the issues of minorities and women and all other groups, um, marginalized groups, all share a common cause. It's, it's sort of like that, where some abolitionists would bundle together a lot of these other causes. And the view from Southerners is that if emancipation happens, then these radical Yankees are going to impose other alien ideological issues on us. Uh, and abolitionism is merely one component. There's also, they'd force, I don't know, total voting rights of women, which doesn't happen until several decades later and all these other issues. So it's, there are different axes converging on the issue of abolitionism. It's not just one issue. And that's part of what makes us so thorny. Absolutely. Uh, and I will mention just, I already said this, but it, it bears repeating that in addition to the Republicans who were very much divided, the, the Democrats, they have their own divisions, but they're not divided on emancipation. Almost all Democrats opposed it. Uh, for example, General McClellan was a Democrat. Uh, 
he we're going to see. Well, I don't know. Should I give this away? He's going to run for president <laughs> as a Democrat to oppose Abraham Lincoln. Uh, sorry if that spoils the surprise. I'm assuming <laughs> most of our listeners already know that. But McClellan was very strongly opposed to emancipation. He just wanted to bring the rebels back into the Union. He wanted to punish the traitors, but not punish them too hard. He didn't want to take away their slaves or anything like that. All right, so that's the political side of it and the background. Thank you, Scott. Now let's move on to the idea of colonization. Uh, the colonization idea was not a new idea at the time of the Civil War. It went well back into the 18th century. Some of the founding fathers were very much interested in colonization. And colonization basically means that you take, uh, take all the black people in the United States, slave or free, and you ship them back to Africa. Or, and and that, that whole idea of back to Africa is actually kind of a misnomer because a lot of these, especially by the time of the Civil War, the overwhelming majority of American slaves had been born in the United States. They had no experience with living in Africa at all. Now, why would people want colonization? Well, one reason is simple racism. People didn't want a lot of white people. I would say the majority of white people in America at the time didn't want black people in the United States. So that's why they wanted to send them away. Others, like Lincoln, were in favor of it because they felt that blacks and whites could never function together in society. They just thought, you, you can't have racial mixing. It's just not going to work. It's going to lead to too much conflict and so on. Right. And, and I, Go ahead. I, yeah, and I think that it, this is another thing that's complicated because, as you said, some want it for racist reasons. And today, I mean, to say go back to Africa is something that would come out of the mouth of a Klansman, basically. Um, back then, the idea might be, well, there maybe they're only one or two generations removed from whoever came over from Africa, so there might be stronger cultural roots. You do have the country of Liberia that partially realizes this idea um, out of the influence of the American Colonization Society that wants to resettle American-born blacks in Africa. Uh because they think that this could be a better opportunity to them. And you have nations like Haiti that were founded by slaves, slaves that revolted. So slave states is something that is happening at this time in history. And some people want this for very racist reasons, as somebody would say something like this today. Others have an idea that this could theoretically work, even though in practice it would be almost completely impractical because you have people who are born in this country and how on earth would you transport 4 million people? But yeah, so uh, yeah, tell us more about Lincoln's meeting with black leaders and how the rubber meets the road with these different ideas. So Lincoln decided to pitch this idea to a group of black leaders. He met with them, invited them to the White House. He tried to convince them of the necessity of colonization, and he asked for volunteers to go. He said, here's my great idea. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, of course, but... He said, uh, how about some of y'all get on a ship and we'll ship you over to Africa and then we'll see how things go. Anybody? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Bueller? Nope. Nobody. No hands went up. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Obviously, the black leaders said no. Robert Purvis wrote to Lincoln later and he said, is it, it is in vain you talk to me of two races and their mutual antagonism. In the matter of rights, there is but one race and that is the human race. Sir, this is our country as much as, as it is yours, and we will not leave it. And, of course, rightly so. The, these men had been these men and, and their wives and 
all, as I mentioned before, pretty much all African Americans at the time had been born in America. So they had pretty much the right to stay there as Lincoln or any other white person. Frederick Douglass in particular criticized Lincoln for hypocrisy. So this really doesn't uh, go very far. There was one attempt, which I'll talk about briefly. There were about 500 blacks that volunteered to immigrate to Haiti. And so the, the U.S. government shipped them to Haiti in April of 1863. But once they arrived, disease swept through the colony. Uh, there were diseases there that the people weren't used to. A year later, they asked to be returned to the U.S. And finally, in April of 1864, just about a year after they had left, a U.S. ship picked them up and brought them back. Only about 368 survived. So sadly, that's uh, like, what, a third or so? Uh, uh, or not quite a third, but a, a good chunk of them, over 100 of them perished. And once this uh, fiasco was done with, that was the end of the talk of colonization. Now, I do want to talk one about another approach that some African Americans took to the slavery problem, and that was that they freed themselves, self-emancipation. As the Union Army marched further and further into uh, the Confederacy and as they took over more areas and more cities, tens of thousands of slaves ran away to the Union Army lines, maybe up to half a million. We don't really know. But Obviously, they didn't keep records. But so when these slaves started showing up and presenting themselves to the U.S. Army, this obviously forced the Army and the government to come up with a solution to the problem of slaves in the South. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those solutions in a minute. But the thing about these runaways is they damaged the Confederate economy. And people, Union generals and politicians and other leaders realized this very quickly. Every time a slave, let's just take a field hand, for example. Every time a field hand runs away and joins up with the Union Army, not that they join the Army, that'll be later, but uh, at first they don't actually join the Army, they just kind of become followers of the Army. Every time that field hand runs away, that's one less person picking crops, harvesting, planting, providing food for Confederate soldiers. And so the Union leaders begin to say, hmm, this is an maybe we should encourage this. All right, so... Moving on, to let's look at some specific anti-slavery efforts. As we mentioned before, abolitionists called for emancipation as a war aim or a war effort from the very beginning of the war. From day one, the abolitionists said, hey, we need to, we need to make freeing the slaves a part of our game plan here because that will punish the South and it'll hurt the South. They acknowledged that the Constitution protected slavery, but they saw slavery as a great moral evil, and they realized that most Northerners did not, however. So, because they, they couldn't just say, well, slavery's wrong, therefore we should end slavery. Most Northerners would say, yeah, yeah, whatever, we don't care. So they came up with this other argument, as I already touched upon, that slavery is essential to the Confederate war effort. If we get rid of all the slaves, if, we, if all the slaves, let's say, were to disappear tomorrow, the Confederacy would starve very quickly. And so if we get rid of slavery, it'll damage the South's ability to make war. And as I already touched upon, this really gets the attention of Lincoln and a lot of the uh, people in the government, as, as well as a lot of top generals. Absolutely. I mean, a slave, the, the cost of purchasing one, I think for a laborer, could be several months, if not one to two years worth of wages of a laborer. Could be. Yeah. It's, um, so that is a lot of capital that disappears. And this, as an aside, this goes to the critical issue that 
The Confederacy is always facing throughout the war of critical manpower shortage, where you have 10 million whites and 4 million slaves in the South. Uh, there's even talk, this does not go very far in the Confederacy, but limited usage of slaves in the army, perhaps as soldiers, so some sort of limited emancipation. Uh, and I think there's a book I believe called Confederate Emancipators, which is such a wonderful title. It makes me jealous as a historian of coming up with something like that. Uh, but, and then there's even more radical talk of, well, what if we emancipate all of our slaves and um, can use them in the war effort in some way? And total emancipation is speculation, but at least some sort of limited partial um, usage in the field of soldiers is discussed by some planners completely denounced in the Confederacy. There are editorials and opinion articles written against it saying, if we emancipate our slaves, what are we fighting a war for? We have successfully, we've emancipated them, but then, then what? And if you have a slave, you put him in a uniform, uh, do you afford him all the rights of a soldier? I mean, there are cases where slaves do join Confederate camps later on, but they're more like aide-de-camps. They basically run errands. Um, th they're mobile slaves at that point. Mm -hmm. They're fetching things. They're treated just as terribly and inhumanely. And and one other thing with this, um, giving slaves weapons, teaching them how to use them, strikes at a mortal fear of the Confederacy and the South in general, where in the antebellum South, you would have militias that, if there were word of uprising in a community, would walk around with weapons, and if they saw what they thought were escaped slaves or they thought there was word of a slave uprising, would have limited forms of martial law to put this down. Handing weapons to slaves could pos positively terrify them. So there's actually talk of some forms of emancipation in the South to deal with this terrible manpower shortage, but never gets very far, and Part of the reason why uh, the South is simply they're, they're fighting a war of attrition and losing it. Hey, everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Absolutely. Now let's talk about some of the things that union generals started doing. As I mentioned before, some union generals, well, I, I didn't mention this before, but it's, it's very interesting to me that there were some union generals that when slaves ran away and presented themselves to the union army, they would send them back. They would return them to their <laughs> masters. You read that and you just shake your head. But like I said earlier, 
most Americans either didn't care about slavery or they wanted it to continue. They, they did not want emancipation, at least at the beginning of the war. But other generals said, hmm, you know, I think we can, uh, I think we can man- get rid of these slaves, take them away from their owners. That'll punish the owners as well as uh, hurting them economically. International law said that in a war, any of an enemy's property that helps them to wage the war is subject to confiscation. So, for example, if, if you're fighting another army, you're allowed under international law to confiscate their food supplies, confiscate their ammunition, confiscate uh, transportation means, such as in this case horses and wagons and whatnot. So some of these generals said, well, slaves are helping these guys to wage the war. These slaves are doing the cooking, they're doing the farming, they're, they're harvesting the crops, they're building things, they're repairing things. As you mentioned, there were slaves in the Confederate Army, not as soldiers, but as teamsters and as cooks and as laborers and things like that. And these, guys, these generals said, let's, let's take that away and see what they can do. So beginning in May of 1861, very early in the war, General Benjamin Butler, he's a real colorful character that we're going to see again and again and again. This is, it's funny that as you study the Civil War, there's several of these generals that just pop up everywhere. Somebody said they're like the Forrest Gump of, <laughs> of the Civil War. You know, they're here and they're there and they're over here. And now they're in Louisiana, and then they're in Virginia, and then they're in Kentucky. Um, Butler's one of these guys. He was commanding at the time at Fort Monroe. That's the Union Fort that is... Uh, at the tip of the Virginia Peninsula between the York and the James River, the one that McClellan uh, went and hung out at for a while. (laughs) Anyway, Benjamin Butler had a lot of slaves uh, that ran away to his lines, and he refused to return them. And the slaveholders got very angry about this. They said, this is my property. You have to give it back to me. And he said, no, I do not. He called them contraband of war, and that phrase is going to stick In fact, these runaway slaves for the rest of the war will be called contrabands. Out in Missouri, on the other side of the country, at least at this time, in August of that year, 1861, General John C. Fremont, the Pathfinder, we've already talked about him some, he went even further. Fremont issued a proclamation saying that the slaves of all rebels in Missouri are free. He just decided, he said, all the slaves are free, at least among rebels. This made him a hero among the radical Republicans, but that was a little too far for Lincoln. He was still working to make sure that Missouri and Kentucky stayed in the Union. So Lincoln actually countermanded this order. He said, no, 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 no. And in May of 1862, a general named David Hunter issued an order freeing all slaves in his department, which was the coastal parts of coastal South Carolina and Georgia. Lincoln also revoked this order, and he finally said, only I have the power to do this. So these generals are going a little bit further than they're really allowed to, but they are making a point, and they're scaring the crud out of the Confederacy. By the way, I should mention in passing that this general, David Hunter, he is in the movie Glory. I know you've seen it, Scott. He's the general that, you remember the general that uh, Matthew Broderick, I should say Matthew Broderick, (laughs) that Colonel Shaw conflicted with quite a bit? He's the tall general. Yes. Anyway, yeah, that's him. Yeah, he he was in command at least for quite a while of the part of South Carolina that the Robert Gouldshaw's unit, the 54th Massachusetts, eventually went to. Anyway, radicals criticized Lincoln for these actions. They said, "Well, why? Why? This is great. They're freeing the slaves. Why would you uh, countermand these orders?" But like I said, Lincoln was very very cautious. 
Sounds like the writing is on the wall. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of time. So then the Congress gets involved. The Congress doesn't want to be outdone by a bunch of generals. On August 6th, 1861, the Congress passes the first Confiscation Act. And this says that owners of slaves in military service forfeits their owner of the slave. This only applies to slaves directly involved in supporting the war effort. Okay, so slaves, as we mentioned, that are helping out the army with cooking and doing labor and things like that, but not necessarily a slave that's, say, back in southern Georgia on a plantation. Uh, March of 1862, Congress forbid Union commanders from returning escaped slaves to their owners. Okay, so no more of this sending them back. But it did not say that the slaves were free. This law actually kind of left things up in the air. Then in April of that year, the next month, April of 1862, Congress abolishes slavery in the District of Columbia, but with compensation. So every slave owner in the District of Columbia has to give up their slaves, but the government pays them in return. June of 1862, Congress abolished slavery in the territories without compensation. So that finally settles the, the long, long, long conflict about slavery in the territories. And then finally, in July of 1862, <clears throat> Congress passed the second Confiscation Act. And this is much tougher than the first one. This Confiscation Act says not only that runaway slaves could not be returned to their owners, but also that any slave that escaped from a rebel owner was free. So this made it even more imperative for slaves to hoof it, basically, to run away. Because now the slaves knew that if they could get away from their owner and if they could get to Union Army lines, they're free. It doesn't really say what's going to happen to them after that, but that's going to be settled a little bit later. So that's Congress. Yeah, I imagine that turns the Underground Railroad from a country lane into a superhighway. I would think so, although I think it was somewhat disrupted in some places because of the war. But, uh, <clears throat> all right, let's move on to Lincoln now. Lincoln also wants to kind of control what's going on here. He wants to take charge. He, even as late as the spring of 1862, Lincoln wanted to implement gradual, compensated emancipation with colonization. And he asked Congress to provide funds for this, and they agreed. Um. Lincoln had a couple of meetings with leaders in the border states, like senators, congressmen, governors, and whatnot, and he tries to get them to accept emancipation. They refuse. And Lincoln's actually starting to get kind of ticked off at them. And then finally in July of 1862, Lincoln decides to issue an emancipation proclamation. He told his cabinet, he caught, caught him by surprise. He just said, oh, by the way, uh, I'm thinking about emancipating the slaves. What? Really? They were generally approving of this, but in fact, I think every cabinet member but one approved of it. But and he, William Seward, the Secretary of State, persuaded Lincoln to wait until the Union had won a victory before issuing it. And it was very wise advice. Seward said, if, if you just issue it now, after we've lost umpteen battles in a row, then it's going to look like a move of desperation. It's, which, look, it's just looking like we're flailing and just trying to desperately stay alive. But if we can do it after a victory, then we're doing it from a position of strength, and the international community will be much more impressed with that. Lincoln says, yeah, you're right, and so he agrees to wait. And then, of course, we saw in the last episode the Union won basically a victory in the Battle of Antietam. It was really more of a draw, but 
the Confederates retreated from the field and went back to Virginia. So that looks like a victory for the Union. And so on September 22nd, just five days later, Lincoln tells the cabinet that he's going to issue his preliminary proclamation. The preliminary proclamation does four things. It freed the slaves in all parts of the U.S. still under rebellion on January 1st, 1863. We'll talk about that in a minute. I want to unpack that. It endorses voluntary colonization. It urged the border states to come up with a plan for emancipation. And it said that all of these measures are given solely as military necessity. All right. Now, finally, January 1st of 1863 rolls around. And this is when the final Emancipation Proclamation is issued. And it's almost the same as the preliminary one, but it's got a couple of differences. And so let's go over those provisions. The final proclamation says, number one, all slaves in parts of the U.S. not controlled by federal troops are free. So, and, and Lincoln kind of took a hit for that. People accused him of, of hypocrisy because this doesn't free all slaves. You know, people, you hear this all the time. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't free the slaves. Okay, well, fine. It didn't free all of them. It freed, it, it actually, I guess, technically at first it didn't free any, but it's, that's going to change. Um, for example, it, I don't know if I'm making this muddy, um, if I'm mudding the waters, but basically the slaves in the border states, slaves in Missouri, Kentucky, and, in uh, uh, Maryland and Delaware, those are not freed. And also the slaves in Louisiana, parts of Louisiana, parts of Virginia, parts of Tennessee, uh, and the border, well, I already said the border states, but those are also excluded because those areas are under union control. Lincoln says, I'm freeing all the slaves that are not under union control. And I love to tell my students that I, I read that to them and I, I look at them and I, all of a sudden a couple of the light comes on. I could tell a couple of people look up and, huh? Because he did what? How, how can he free the slaves in areas that are not under his control? I always use this analogy. Imagine that the president of North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un, he issues a proclamation saying that every American has to send their car to North Korea. <laughs> that, what would you do? It <laughs> sounds like something he's exactly done. All of your Lamborghinis and Dennis Rodman paraphernalia must come now. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, obviously, every American would say, yeah, forget it. Come over here and get it, buddy. I'm not sending you anything. And that's exactly what the Confederates said. They said, well, okay, you can say you're freeing our slaves, but uh, we're not going to free them. But here's the deal. It opened the door for future freeing of slaves in that as the Union Army uh, expands its area of control and takes over more and more Confederate territory in those territories the slaves will be freed. So there's going to be this wave of emancipation. With the advance of the Union Army comes the advance of freedom for the slaves. And, you know, as I said, Lincoln was criticized for hypocrisy. They said, well, you'll, you won't free the slaves in your own country, but you'll free the slaves in the other countries. Some people said it's just a paper measure. You know, it's just a, it's, it's just a wishful thinking. Um, Southerner said he was trying to incite slave rebellion which he really wasn't, but uh, he wouldn't have minded that. But most importantly, the Emancipation Proclamation changes, radically changes the nature of the war. It changes the Union war aim. 
Now the war was not just to save the Union. It was that, yes, but it was also now a war to abolish slavery. Because, as I mentioned, wherever the Union Army goes, the slaves become free. Freedom goes with the army. And also another very important thing, the importance of this cannot be overemphasized, and that is that the proclamation also authorized, formally and officially authorized the use of black soldiers. We may do a mini episode on this at some point because it's very important to the war. But prior to this, black soldiers were not allowed in the Union Army. Now, strangely enough, they were allowed in the Navy. They served in the Navy from the beginning and they were integrated. They served side by side with white sailors, but the Union Army, for, for a variety of reasons, simple racism and other, uh, other reasons, blacks were not allowed to serve in the Union Army. But now they are. And what's going to end up happening is, by the war's end, nearly 200,000 men of, of African descent, you know, African Americans, they're going to put on the blue uniform and they're going to fight bravely for the Union. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Right. I, this is very critical in terms of the evolution of race relations and the way that you have uh, later black citizens serving in the armed forces. There are times when they're totally uh, services are integrated. And I think uh, Woodrow Wilson resegregates forces and then um, Harry Truman completely abolishes it. Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower. I forget which one. It's Harry Truman. Harry Truman. OK. Uh, so this is a critical step in that evolution. Uh, there's a couple of questions I have. I don't know if you know this, James, or not, but one issue of colonization, and I know the Back to Africa movement envisions someplace in Africa, someplace on the West Coast, roughly approximating, approximating where they came from as a site of settlement. Were there any other sites that politicians or others proposed? Like, for example, Oklahoma, that was seen as the solution to the resettlement of American Indians and the Trail of Tears and everything. Was there anyone saying, oh, let's set up Montana or a sparsely populated Western territory 
as a way? Or was it was the idea always somewhere in Africa or somewhere in the Caribbean? Well, I can't say with 100% certainty that nobody suggested a place that would eventually be part of the U.S. I mean, I'm sure somebody said, yeah, maybe we'll put them in Montana territory or something like that. But I will say that that was that if if somebody said it, that would have been a very minority idea. In other words, most people did not want because of racism. Once again, most people wanted if they wanted the African-Americans to leave, they wanted them to go somewhere else completely outside of the U.S. So there were all kinds of places suggested. Uh, Haiti was one option, as we saw. The, the main place was the country of Liberia or what became the country of Liberia. There was also a British uh, colony for for colonization or for for freed slaves in Sierra Leone, which now, of course, that's an independent country too. But that's how Liberia was started. Liberia was going to be a country made up of former uh, former slaves and former free blacks that had immigrated from America to Africa, but not that many went. There were a few thousand that did go. Um, in fact, the capital of Liberia is named after James Monroe. It's Monrovia. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Because Monroe was a big uh, proponent of colonization, uh, there were some people said South America, uh, but it was mainly the idea was to send them to some kind of tropical climate, but primarily to Liberia. Right, and I think one of the main reasons this doesn't get off the ground is it because it's a movement from without, not from within, as you said. That absolutely uh, black That's leaders right. didn't support this, but. The idea itself of people settling in a new area where they can start over, uh, centered around their own identity, not as strange as it sounds. Um, this is not too far in years away from the Zionist movement started by Theodor Herzl, the Jewish journalist, uh, Austrian, I think, who uh, believes that Jews simply cannot live in Europe. They'll always be a persecuted minority. So he supports Zionism. And it was never locked down that Israel would be the site of this. Um, of course, there's the biblical connection, but that was just an Ottoman territory. They hadn't lived there um, in a majority population. There's arguments about this. I won't get into it, but some would say since Roman time. So there were talks of Madagascar or all sorts of places where the Jews mm -hmm. can resettle. And um, But waves of Jews come there after pogroms in Russia and other areas. So it's a movement within that causes this resettlement that ultimately culminates in the nation of Israel. Uh, with blacks in America, the difference is it was never really a movement within. Some might have, but more of a movement without. So that's why it wouldn't succeed. But the very idea of it, there were other groups that were attempting it. So it seems just absurd today, but I'm just trying to give some context to see how it would seem like a plausible idea to a statesman like Lincoln and other people as well. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And one other question I had, James, was about compensation. So you mentioned that uh, those who emancipated slaves in D.C. were compensated. Those in territories were not. How much was this compensation? Um, I always imagine the government as being cheap and chintzy, so I can't imagine they would actually replace <laughs> the full market value of a slave. No. But, uh, yeah. No, it was, I believe I've read $500. I, my mind is drawing a blank right now, but I've, I know that... $500 was either a proposed amount or was the actual amount. I will have to research and return on that. But uh, it definitely was not the full market value because a, a healthy male slave, a strong young man who was, say, let's say 18, 19, 20, 25 maybe, could get $1,500. Um, 
And sometimes some women could actually even get more than that because, of course, a woman can have babies. And sadly, uh, some female slaves were sold and, and groomed simply to be the, how shall we say this, the master's mistress, we'll put it politely, the plaything. In other words, they were used for sexual reasons, and those could get even higher in the four or $5,000 range, which that, that's a, a lot of money now, but imagine how, you know, I think the basic rule of thumb is you take a dollar back then and multiply it by 15 to get today's dollars. So to pay uh, $4,000 for a slave would be like paying 60000 for something today. It's just a huge amount of money. But yeah, definitely nowhere close to the actual market value. But, the, but Lincoln said, and the Congress said, you can either take that or you can take nothing. If you don't take the, t take the deal we give you now, later on you might not get anything. So they had to take what they could get. Right. And another reason why this really cripples the South, if you consider the amount of capital that is simply disappearing and um, that that so as a element of strategy, it's critical. Well, yes. yeah, I mean, emancipation, one of the most important results of the war, critical to shifting the focus of the war and also uh, affecting how the war is fought, as we'll see. So that was our side episode. We'll probably have a few more like this as we go on. But in the next episode, we're going to be uh, continuing our narrative. Uh, James, what is up next in our Civil War battle series? We are going to stay in the East next time. We're going to see what happens when uh, we, uh, we talked about how McClellan was fired as the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln's going to put somebody else to fill in his shoes, send him down to Lee and say, <laughs> basically whip good old Bobby Lee and we'll see if that works or not. We'll find out. All right. See you then. All right. Well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris Romain and Melissa Sarnowski. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free, all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Autumn and Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, 
but you also get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three pack of hardcover history books, plus you'll be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.